Welcome back to the Demystify Sci podcast. Today we have our first conversation about the phenomenon. We have with us Dr. Massimo Teodorani, an Italian astrophysicist who is involved in Avi Loeb's Galileo project and is trying to take high-resolution spectroscopic images of inexplicable phenomena in order to tell what is happening. The idea is pretty simple. If you could take a spectroscopic image of an unidentified object, you might be able to discover what the mode of propulsion might be. Many people have reported strange electromagnetic disturbances in the vicinity of these phenomena, and he's basically proposed that if you can take a sufficiently high-resolution picture, you'd be able to see line splitting of ionized gases in the atmosphere. So oxygen would normally have a single spectroscopic line in the presence of a very, very strong magnetic field. It would divide and you would have two. And that would give us insight onto these very irreproducible and difficult to study events. And our conversation talks about the Galileo project. We talk about the nature of inquiry. We talk about music. We talk about where ideas come from. We cover a lot of ground because Dr. Teodorani is, he's kind of a renaissance man. He has a lot of different subjects that he's interested in. He's willing to to go to the very edge of science and speculate to what lies beyond what we know. And that is basically our bread and butter. Yeah, I really like how careful he is. And he's always prefacing his statements with, this is a speculation, you know, and, and he's good about separating out what, he, what are observations from what are theories and yeah, he's just a really thoughtful dude. And I think you guys are going to love it. And it's also our first time cracking open this UIP subject. And honestly, it kind of reinforces what we were thinking already, but uh, that's cool too. So there's a whole information layer to society and there is manipulation of that information layer. Everybody's clearly aware of that after the events of the last couple of years, at least out here in the West. And so, yeah, this plays directly into that conversation too. If you like what we do, leave a comment, uh, come to our Discord. Share it with people. That's how we get the word out. You know, the algorithms aren't going to feed this to people unless you guys do. So, For whatever reason, if anybody is working at YouTube and watching this, can you help us figure out what's going on with the algorithm? We would <laughs> really appreciate that. Um, if you have already shared it and you want to help us more, you can come join our Patreon. We are building a community of people who are interested in building something with us. And so. our direct advisors, essentially, right? This is something of a community project in that we don't have time to be out there digging through the internet and finding all of the cool things that need to be explored. Uh, we have some time for that, but you guys can really get involved and come out to our weekly chats and power this machine. And so enjoy the conversation, and we will see you soon. The scientific revolution starts now. I've been working, of course, a lot in, uh, in the astrophysical research on uh, explosive objects like um, uh, supernovae, uh, novae, and uh, close um, high mass, close binary stars, protostars, all what is exploding in the universe. Mm. So that has been my field for many years. Uh, but in parallel, 
the I would say the Mr. Hyde that is in me. I wanted to co-live with Dr. Jekyll, and I started to think that uh, uh, it would be interesting to know what uh, an astrophysicist could do with his um, methodology in order to try to take measurements of a strange phenomenon that is uh, seen in the sky mm -hmm. uh, after clearly eliminating the, all the sources of noise, uh, oxys, uh, so many, you know, uh, known phenomena. I don't speak about that because 90% of this kind of phenomenon can be very easily explained like man-made, uh, natural, or something. So anyway, it's so you're, you're basically talking about applying spectroscopy to local phenomena in our own atmosphere, something like that. Yes, yes. I was speaking about that because this is exactly what I'm doing now. I'm trying to optimize the technique of spectroscopy to try to take spectra of this kind of phenomena uh, in order to attempt to search for the existence or absence of some crucial phenomena. Not only spectrochemical identification of the uh, spectral lines, for instance, uh, uh, which is useful because it can give us um, ideas about temperature, for instance, excitation temperature of the phenomenon. But uh, I'm interested in the um, possibility that some of these phenomena uh, are able to produce a Zeeman effect, namely a splitting of spectral lines due to a very strong magnetic field. Hmm. Uh, this is the point. There are many models uh, of people more or less mad, okay, but some are quite coherent from the physics point of view of a possibility that uh, if these phenomena are not natural, but they are technological, someone is using very high current, something hmm. like a 20 million volts, okay, in order to create a strong magnetic field. And this could be sustained clearly using uh, superconducting materials uh, mm -hmm. that uh, we don't have yet. Okay. So if they are able to create in some way strong magnetic field, we want to see how much is that magnetic field. And we would see from the splitting of uh, um, spectral lines. All right. We so hold on, hold on one second. Let me just fill people in who aren't up on spectroscopy. So the basic idea is that. You know, with a black body, something that is solid or liquid, you're going to get these like continuous rainbows. And then over top of that, if there's a gas present of some sort, you get these individual lines. This is, we're talking about the, the different light wavelengths that you observe across the yeah. spectrum. And so something funny happens to these gas lines when they're in the presence of strong magnetic fields. Uh, is that yeah. the effect that you're talking about? Exactly, yes. I am speaking about atmospheric gas, so oxygen, hydrogen, in case also sodium, that could be uh, ionized, ionized and excited by a release of electricity, uh, sorry, of temperature, because this would be a release of the electric resistance coming from the surface of the object, which mm -hmm. would excite uh, the atmospheric uh, uh, sort of envelope around itself, like a bubble, 
um, made of excited gas, which would be a consequence of this strong electric field, which creates, I expect, a very strong magnetic field. So we want to try to measure that. And so I'm thinking uh, what is the ideal way to to do that, to measure this thing in a practical way, because if we uh, wanted to measure this magnetic field, we need a high resolution. Mm. But if we want a high resolution, we need a very heavy instrument, okay, that we use uh, in astrophysics, namely a resolution of lambda over delta lambda of 10,000, for instance, or even more. The let's hold on, hold on. Let's, yeah, so uh, let's like talk a, about that. You're like comparing the wavelengths there. So you're saying like the the shift between the the delta lambda is the shift in wavelength after the Lyman splitting. Zeeman oh, no, splitting. splitting. Sorry, it's sorry. the Zeeman splitting. It means uh, the capability of um, of the um, instrument to resolve two close lines. For instance, mm. if I have a line that is. Uh, 5,000 angstrom, and you have a line of 5,010 angstrom, if I have a low resolution, I would see only one line. Yeah. They are merged together. But if, a high, if I have a higher resolution, I can see them very resolved, very distinguished, the one from the other. So we have to go in, 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 the, in a very fine way uh, because otherwise we would not see the splitting at all. But in this case, uh, the problem, uh, we have to make a compromise because um, um, high-resolution instrument is too heavy and uh, we uh, need to apply it to a pan-tilt pan camera to track the object uh, once we have identified as an anomalous object. It's too heavy. And so we have to use a compromise uh, I have an instrument. I also have uh, this uh, prototype of an instrument that was made by an American um, physical chemist, uh, which gives a medium resolution, which is uh, anyway sufficient to see uh, the Zeeman splitting if the magnetic field is particularly high, mm -hmm. namely something between 10 and 1000 Tesla. In that case, we can see it. Let me, let me pause you for just yeah. a second. I want, I want to yeah. go back to why it is that you suspect that there should be an anomalous uh, or, or extreme electromagnetic phenomena going on with these UAPs. Yeah, good question. Right? What, uh, do you, did you, is this from an observation that you had, or is this just a suspicion that if they are some sort of advanced technology that they should present this way? Well, the point is that, first of all, I don't know if it's uh, technology or not, could be a natural phenomenon, but uh, the point is that there is a very, uh, very um, long casuistry of electromagnetic interference uh, on um, electric device. It's really very long, and there is a PhD guy who uh, collected all these witnesses so these are not measurements, but are these are associated with UAPs. Is that what you is that what you mean? Like in the yes. sense that people experience some kind of EMF disturbance when they come yeah. by. They experienced uh, not only in their own body, but uh, the television set, uh, the cars, you know, all of a sudden stops, and uh, in uh, many cases, uh, these objects were not close mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. all. 
So the magnetic field must be really very strong because you have to consider that an electrical deep dipole um, uh, produces a magnetic field which decreases with the inverse of the cube of the distance. So if you have something like 10 uh, Tesla, for instance, you can see its effect uh, only at uh, two kilometers of distance. But if people is seeing something that we know it's far away from them, and yet it creates these effects, it means that the magnetic field must be extremely strong. Mm -hmm. So, can you I measure this? To like, could, could you compare it to like a bolt of lightning or something? Is that a reasonable comparison? Or what, um, what is? What are the current strengths that it that must we're be stronger? For? Because yes. like a bolt of lightning, like doesn't if it, disturb the TV, right? Yeah, like if it hits the TV, <laughs> it disturbs it. But like, it's no, not like it's the. Something, uh, it's something more. Uh, the the bo a bolt of lightning is uh, is effective when it hits very close. In this, in the case of this object, we have uh, something that is more, and it's continuous. It's not something uh, transient uh, like a. Uh, Electric, electric lightning, uh, it's something continuous that la can last many minutes. And so I wanted, uh, I, I studied the, the casuistry and I wanted to verify with our instruments if we can measure something like that. The point is that all my efforts are to try to find a trick to obtain good data. So with the uh, acceptable signals to noise ratio, something like of, uh, 10, greater than 10 at least, uh, in order to measure that and to see if it's present or not. And uh, so can we go back to the, the, the spectra? Of the, uh, did, you, did you examine existing data already to try to get some spectral information? You know, you, you mentioned that you could extrapolate temperatures and is there, have you had some success with that already in terms of looking at other people's photos or? Because I mean, it, this is something that you, you have to gather the data at the source, right? So your camera so you're already- chasing a UAP in the first place. You're right? But I mean, people will, they, they will take videos and we know that we have some, like the FLIR cameras are capturing some infrared stuff, but it's not spectral cameras. So no, have, they're not. And Most so- more most of uh, uh, the so-called data that have been taken so far um, show only images uh, or sometimes videos, uh, such as the project Hesdalen in Norway, with uh, which I collaborated since 30 years, by the way. They are videos, okay. Uh, they are spectra, but spectra are too low resolution to be considered. I already took spectra of this kind of phenomena using spectral gratings, uh, but the resolution is too low. Mm. And the, the spectra, spectral gratings are the ones that you can just buy on like Amazon where you can get like sheets. You, you can buy some are of good quality. For instance, I have a rainbow optics uh, spectroscope or stargazer spectroscope there. They cost... Uh, three four hundred dollars and you can you put in front of the lens and you take spectra which is which is not bad spectra uh in one cases i um found the spectral lines of oxygen in the red part of the spectrum so this shows it's a thermal phenomenon that is uh, 
exciting day atmosphere. In other cases... Can I, can I ask you a real quick question? Yeah. I'm sorry. Since yeah. you're a physicist, yeah. I, I'm really curious. How does that thing work? How does the... This, the spectrum... Is, is it a refractive process? Like the spectral... The, the, the spectral grading? Yes. Yeah. It's a diffraction. Diffraction. So it, does it... It splits different wavelengths out by interfering... There's an interference process or something? Yeah, something like that. Okay. And um, it's uh, in the optical spectrum from uh, 3,800 angstrom up to uh, 6,500, more or less, mm -hmm. in the optical I spectrum. Uh, yes. I would like to, before we get deeper into what it is that you've, you've seen, I want to make sure that we have uh, a context for what it is that you're looking at. Because you said at the beginning where you had to go through a filtering process of things that are clearly man-made or explainable versus Absolutely. the things that are not. And so can you give us a sense of we're, we're still very green in terms of pursuing the UAP question. So give us context for what you think is, is reputable or worth further investigation and what isn't. Yeah, good question. Well, um, first of all, in the... We already uh, built a database, uh, for instance, inside the Galileo project, uh, of which I'm a collaborator. Uh, with Avi things. Loeb? Yes. Okay. Yeah, cool. I'm an affiliate researcher of the Galileo project. Very cool. We and had we him on the show a, last year. Uh, there is a group, there are several groups, clearly, uh, many researchers. Everyone has his own specialization. And we tried to um, um, do machine learning to the software to be able to distinguish things that we already know are man-made. So uh, several photos of drones of several kind, airplanes of every kind, even even shelling in the sky, you know, you, you, you can photograph a shell while it's uh, flying in the air if you use high-speed camera. We are putting all, all these things that can be explained, very easily explained. Then there are birds, uh, birds that are illuminated by street lights, for instance, from below, uh, can appear like, a, a, I would say, flotillas of uh, UFOs or something. There are many causes. Insects, insects that are going in front of the lens can simulate something like that. They're you know, new age people that speak about orbs. This is dust or snowflakes or spray or uh, insects or, or whatever. There are really many causes of that. Then there are the natural one. There are satellites. Uh, there is the movement of, for instance, of a very luminous planet like Venus, Jupiter through the clouds that give the impression that uh, it is moving, but there are the clouds that are moving. Uh, there are really, or uh, there is also um, uh, lasers, laser beams from uh, discos uh, that uh, go out from the window, hit the clouds. Mm -hmm. They they excite the clouds and uh, make them, you see some luminous spots moving very quickly in the sky, but that comes from the laser. So there are many, really very many causes uh, that uh, can be explained. But there are places in the world, like Stalin in Norway, but not only in Stalin, you also 
have something in uh, much in the United States, like Marfa in Texas, the Brown Mountain, uh, the Indian Reservation of Yakima, where this kind of phenomenon occur more often. So, and we know that these phenomena are not man-made, are not uh, anything that we know. So we want to try to place the instruments just there uh, because these areas are can be considered like a, a laboratory areas uh, for measurements. And we have attempted uh, this, uh, this research. It's very difficult. And but using uh, automatic station, uh, something that is, uh, you know, multi wavelength uh, instruments, multi mode instruments like magnetometers, also radio spectrometers and uh, uh, all sky cameras, infrared camera, FLIR camera work all together and monitor the sky 24 hours trying to catch something. Then the artificial intelligence decided, which is uh, a good um, target to consider, especially from the all um, sky uh, survey. And after that, the data is sent to a pan tilt camera with a specialized camera that try to zoom on the object of interest mm. uh, with which uh, you can take uh, images, you can take videos, or in case also spectra. The, the spectral part is now under project because we are doing something completely new, different from the past. We have to solve several problems. We have to understand what is the best because we need well calibrated data, high quality data with a acceptable signal to noise ratio. We need something that is done exactly with the same criterion that we use for astronomy. Okay, so it's not easy. We try this attempt. This is my part, uh, the spectroscopy, but not only spectroscopy, also high speed photometry. Mm -hmm. How do you pick the places where you're going to try to demo this technology? Right, because I mean, there's some places that have these consistent phenomena. You mentioned Stalin, you mentioned Marfa. Are there other places? Yeah, yeah, there are other places. There is Marfa in, in Texas. Uh, there is um, the Brown Mountain. There is uh, um, Joplin somewhere in the United States. I think Mississippi. And re re recently, there there is the Catalina Island um, in California. I will remember where uh, American um, uh, pilots of F-18E. Um, mm, had encounters with this phenomena and which were documented uh, using uh, um, targeting pod, uh, the normal targeting pod, uh, which is working in also in the infrared. And they confirmed that uh, there was really something uh, um, that it's worth studying. So there are several uh, recurrence plays uh, in, um, uh, or sometimes there are places where the phenomenon occurs all of a sudden and then. It uh, happens, like in Brazil, in Colares, uh, 30, 40 years ago, and then it goes away. Okay, so it's difficult. It's really very difficult. We wanted to make an attempt because we wanted to understand what's going on. We are not 
there to say, oh, we are searching for the aliens on Earth. We want, to, uh, at least I speak for myself, to unmask what is appearing in our sky. Mm, I, I cannot even exclude that, that someone is cheating us. Uh, but this is my opinion, okay? Uh, because it is very well known that uh, uh, the military have uh, um, some kind of artifacts which are um, optical and also audio uh, uh, that are used for so-called psychological warfare. So they create these things in the sky using uh, several, um, you know, device. Uh, to, um, to cheat, to uh, or yeah, to distract. I saw this really cool article in Forbes a couple of years ago. I've mentioned it before on the show, but you know, it was like this defense contractor had developed a tool to project a heat signature hologram from a satellite, essentially. And I'm like, wow, that sounds exactly like those Tic Tac UFO things. Um, yeah. I don't know if it was or not, but I thought it was really interesting that it, it yeah. you know, it was a very small headline. It disappeared. Um, but I was like, huh, that's, that seems like that could explain some of this stuff if people it were... Could. It could. And all these things um, would, um, anyway, appear, especially from spectroscopy, because if there is kind, uh, some kind of artificial light, uh, like uh, flares, for instance, we expect what kind of spectral lines they would produce. And we would unmask them immediately, okay? So the important thing is uh, rationally... Um, unmask literally it's like investigative work and and see what's going on because people wants to know people has to use critical thinking and you know how easy is to uh how to say to uh remote remotely control people uh, with the light in the sky, you can remotely control people in the same way in which I remotely control my cat with my laser spot <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, so uh, I, I have a. It is. It is. It is very interesting, and I think that it is. You're you're touching upon a psychological aspect of this, which is that people want to believe and people want to be part of something that is larger than themselves. And there's this entire structure around the phenomenon that's very spiritual and psychological. Tantalizing. Tantalizing. And one of the things that makes it so tantalizing is that oftentimes the footage is grainy and not very good and so you see yeah. something but you can't really tell what it is and how and now that you have these setups with these cameras are you starting to get really really high resolution footage of these of these events in Norway and in Marfa or well no there are some there are some of quite uh, acceptable uh, quality in uh, in Norway uh, we um uh, we have done missions there in Norway, been in Norway four times, and um, we had high resolution video cameras, for instance, uh, where you can see many details uh, and also very shocking uh, aspects, for instance, um, lights that uh, are spherical. And uh, they don't show any structure, so you would think it's a natural phenomenon of the ball lightning kind, maybe, but much bigger. All of a sudden, the, the spherical thing becomes a re perfect rectangle. 
Uh, clearly, it's a rectangle. Oh. I can say that because there are not four pixels there, but there are 400 pixels. So uh, I, I use also another camera just to have a confirmation that it, that's becomes a rectangle it becomes a rectangle so i don't know how how it happens sometimes i think if it's a natural phenomenon uh i would think about the snowflakes when you look at snowflakes there is a geometric uh, symmetrical um, pattern and so what happens with the plasmas and so there is a lot that we have still to learn and um, could be something very interesting uh, it's not necessary that we find aliens or something. It could be, but uh, uh, there could be something very interesting in in nature, and maybe triggered by uh, um, by the ground, by piezoelectricity, for instance, and um, a new source of energy. It's very interesting to understand how it works, because in that case we might reproduce all this in a laboratory. A very clean source of energy. This is one of the perspectives that we have. But yes, we have some good, not perfect resolution videos of photos, but some are good. Most of them are low resolution. They're lights that you, you, you could create them by yourself with a laser or something. Okay. Uh, some are good. But we need uh, much better quality. And uh, so far, there's not been any initiative, scientific. Well, there's been, but not enough scientific initiative. We need something much more systematic. And the Galileo project, for instance, is pushing very much in this direction. So Professor Eviloeb is doing uh, very well. Absolutely well. I agree with him. I don't agree with him with some things, but... Uh, I agree with him with the general strategy, absolutely. Yeah, and Rigo. Do you, do you mm. feel like it's like, okay, there's a very real possibility that what you're studying is some sort of defense project, right? That's at least a possibility. Could it be? To, to some portion of what you're studying, I should say. Um, do you feel like that is an almost impossible task because whatever sort of information you try to bring to the table will be denied or not given the full attention because it's like a national security threat of some sort? Well, um, there is this risk, clearly. Uh, there is this risk because um, um, I think that um, this uh, uh, conversation that will be public uh, is very useful to tell who is important on the higher sphere that um, the intent, I speak for myself, but I think that also my colleagues agree, in the intent to uh, clarify something that is creating confusion in society. Mm. It's creating, uh, um, uh, how to say, emotional uh, um, turmoil or something like that. If there is something that is a threat to national security, it would be my moral ethical duty to inform the military immediately if we find something that could be uh, technological that could be threatening my first uh, and i would i wouldn't ask any permission to anyone to do that i would immediately inform uh, the military personnel and also secret services if necessary uh, to uh, uh, 
it's my duty. Okay. Yeah, it's I guess my- I'm just saying, like, what if what you're studying the military knows about because they built it in the first place? They're not going to be very interested in entertaining the idea that it's been characterized very well by somebody. Do you know what because I'm saying? Because if it's a nu- so, if it is something that is, let's say, the U.S. military or the some some Western military alliance that's working on, it would be inauspicious for that to be disclosed as being a project of the military rather than remaining something unknown and extraterrestrial. Like, do you, do you experience any kind of tension with, uh, with national security or with military personnel? Would you even know? Would you even something, know? Uh, something has happened in the past. Um, well, first of all, I had um, an important um, conference, a scientific conference uh, here in North Italy. And uh, it was about this light phenomena and uh, the way to monitor and to showing also the data that we have so far. And it, it, it's interesting because uh, there was the chief of a military base of uh, tactical bombers in my region, uh, in Italy, in North Italy. Uh, so they came on purpose. Mm. They were on the front row. Uh, listening and uh, at some point uh, the guy he was uh, very kind he was he a big officer with his attendant and he told don't call them ufos okay he told Mm. me don't call ufos don't use that term and i told well i'm using the term not as alien spacecraft, but only as something that is not identified like uh, uh, Dr. Allen Hynek, astronomer, said in, in the past, just in the way. That was one. Another one was, uh, oh yeah, this was the biggest. I was at a place, to, I cannot say which place, but an important place to um, try to take measurements of this phenomena. And uh, yes, one night we saw something that um, uh, was not simply a light ball, but it was just a triangular object uh, that was uh, floating in the sky, started to move towards us. We were five. We saw it in two different directions, and uh, it, that was a machine, no doubt. But it could have been also a kind of a drone, but uh, non noise at all it was floating it was hovering like an helicopter and it disappeared from us uh five days before i met two um a technician of a nato uh, radar control station asking them they came to see us and very kind and i told them please if you have any radar truck send if you can send to us because we can make something scientifically important that we would furnish to you too then because um i was told after the sighting that we had which we couldn't document because it was like a surprise i was told that um, one month later uh, that a technician i asked so what about the radar data of the nato uh, control station uh, they were ordered to delete uh, the so-called boogie. They call it boogie. Delete whatever 
uh, has to do with this kind of phenomenon must be deleted. Okay, this goes against science, uh, absolutely. And uh, um, I think the military, which I support, um, when they are not dictatorial like Mr. Putin or someone else, um, are very important, and it's important to inform them meticulously on what uh, we are doing uh, to send periodically reports, which I have done and which I will do again in order to protect uh, the security. But my goal is, uh, is not military. My, my goal is to try to understand the physics of the phenomenon or to um, try to unmask a colossal cheating uh, to humanity. It could be also that. Uh, so I'm called with this. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. That uh, I mean, at least for that particular phenomenon that you're describing, it seems like... Uh, you know, if you if it is a machine, indeed, somebody's probably aware of that and uh, maybe not too interested in you studying it since they're studying it. Kind of, but there's been this huge push towards disclosure, and I've been looking at it and trying to piece together the the rationale for it. Because so, uh, I I just briefly saw this that uh, Harry Reid, who was the Nevada senator who dis- who who started disclosure in the United States. There was a follow-up piece a while later where he was uh, put on record intimating that what was observed by the Navy pilots was not extraterrestrial. And he kind of, he, it seemed like he was implying that there were, that, that he felt that there were other explanations. And, and yet, the, there's a huge ecosystem of people that are out claiming to be former CIA contractors, former Area 51 people, like the entire Tom DeLong project where they're speaking about this in, in the sense of having authority from the government to disclose. And it just feels weird to me. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you make of the, of the like podcast circuit UAP experts? There are some uh, uh, leads that, well, I'm, I'm not close to the community of uh, ufologists. I'm a physical scientist. <laughs> Even if some ufologists are very well prepared, and I have to be honest, I have to tell, some are good. Both uh, the skeptical kind and also the possibilist uh, kind. I would say that there, I, my impression even if I cannot demonstrate, is that there is someone around who pretend to represent the government, uh, but they are only spreading disinformation uh, everywhere. Uh, their goal is to create confusion, mm. uh, to deviate, uh, to divert uh, people who are um, very much involved. Uh, and I am very much involved in this thing. And um, I normally mm, prefer not to listen uh, to the stories of disclosure of something because there is a, a mix of, uh, in my opinion, lies, uh, a very well-architected lies, uh, new age uh, bullshit or something like that. And uh, 
I don't know. I don't believe them. I mean, it's, I'd completely agree that it's hard to explain why in the world the government would allow somebody to just roll out on the podcast circuit who's, you know, disclosing all of this top secret information. Like, I don't know if you know anybody in the military, but the few people I've talked to who have top secret clearance or have clearance at all, it's like an extraordinarily vetted process. And the consequences are grave if you disclose information that you weren't supposed to. Like even people trying to publish books about wars they've been in and so forth have to go through this huge chain of command to be able to do that and get, you know, approval from the highest levels. And so the fact that these people are even out there making all this media to me is just like, it, it just can only be explained as intentional disinformation that is endorsed or just guys just making shit up. And that's the part of it that really freaks me out because I I feel like it is so... In, and you even see that there's people that are in government. You know, there's senators, sitting Congress people who are who are talking about disclosure and they're talking about the, the, the phenomenon. And I can't get a read on what exactly is going on. And it feels like uh it feels like audience capture do you know that do you know that term yeah Yeah. so right so it's like people who are who benefit greatly from talking about it are are induced to continue talking about it without any real basis of of fact or data because most people who talk about this they talk they talk a lot but it's not like they're actually saying anything it's a huge hit right on on the media on the media circuit right like you've seen channels or you know content creators who start off exploring lots of different science and then they do like a uap video and it blows up and then they're just like well i'll just do uap videos from now on and so you end up with this huge proliferation of content about the tantalizing possibilities of extraterrestrial advanced intelligence and all of this stuff, which is really fun and fantastical to dream about. But it also, in a way, shut down actual scientific dialogues that could have been happening in their place. Yeah, It seems they do that on purpose just to, uh, they want to capture, like uh, uh, you said before, the emotions of people um, it's a way, I think, to manipulate the mind of people because it it has a very strong emotional content. Of, okay, uh, they have no problem. This kind of people who is spreading uh, um, spectacular videos, which in most cases are made with CGI, by the mm. way, uh, no one is telling anything to them. They are completely free to cheat uh, the others. No one is attacking them. Maybe uh, they will get an award about that. For instance, in the ancient past, uh, there was a guy who was called uh, George Adamski. Uh, uh, well, in the 1950s, more or less. And he spread uh, photos of um, UFOs. Uh, some are interesting difficult to create them. Some others are just lanterns. Okay. So this guy, I know uh, that uh, when he died, he was buried in the Arlington Cemetery where heroes are are buried. Why? Mm-hmm. Is it a chance? So did he participate to a campaign of social 
emotional manipulation using UFO because it can be a weapon. It can be a weapon. I know uh, the, your government, when he was uh, fighting in Vietnam, was using a lot of psychological warfare. And, uh, and um, UFO think might be a sort of psychological warfare to manipulate society. We have to be very careful. And clearly, uh, someone in the higher sphere is not very happy that there are some scientists that want to look through the keyhole of the door because that's exactly what you want to do. And we do that not only for our curiosity. We want to do that to make a, a service to society and in, in, invite society to think with their own head, with their own rationality, even if uh, uh, extraterrestrial visitation is possible, absolutely possible. Interesting. So it's like, it, it's fascinating that this gentleman was buried in a military... Uh, what, what was his name? The guy who was buried in Arlington? Uh, George Adamski. George Adamski. Because uh, this, this to me really point, this points out the whole series of all of his work. It, it, it would really suggest that it has a roots in intelligence. We saw the same thing with the uh, Epstein child. Um, you know, Maxwell, uh, his, his partner in crime, her dad was uh, also uh, involved in all sorts of intelligence projects throughout his life before he got into publishing. And then surprisingly, he was also buried in a Mossad graveyard in, in Israel and given, and there was all these uh, super high ranking Mossad officials at his uh, funeral and he died under weird circumstances. So it seems to be kind of a funny pattern that uh, a little breadcrumb that's, that's left out with these intelligence schemes. Well, I mean, I think that that's the water in which we swim. Like I've been listening to this podcast called the service, which is about a, uh, an intelligence operation in New Zealand during the cold war. And they're talking about spycraft, and they're talking about the the way that the Western governments were, were were working against the Soviet Union, and New Zealand was kind of this battleground for the two sides. And it just becomes apparent how much is happening beneath the level of our awareness, because everything is kept so secret, documents are destroyed. The things that we find out about, like when uh, MK Ultra came out. It wasn't because the CIA decided to disclose intentionally. I think that it was that somebody, there was like a, a, a set of documents that hadn't been destroyed. And so the only reason that it became public knowledge is because somebody requested it and it turned out that they hadn't been destroyed and so it was released. But how much is destroyed regularly and how much is happening behind the scenes in order for these states to manipulate the the world condition against one another it just seems like the default and it, so there's two layers of information right there's like what's actually happening and then there's the narrative that everybody's exposed to about what's happening and it's it's nowhere more apparent right now than in this uap discussion i think yeah you said something really interesting where you said that there were people involved with national security who were unhappy about the scientists trying to look through the keyhole can you say more about that Sorry, can you say the, the last uh, few words? Because I didn't hear them well. Can you, can you say more about that? So you said that there's national security people who are unhappy about the scientists trying to look through the keyhole. Yeah. Um, it's my impression. It's my impression. I, I tell you why. Um, um, 
I never uh, noticed anyone who tried to attack uh, um, people who is telling, oh, last night I had a sexual intercourse with an alien. No problem. They can tell that. They can tell, oh, the other day I was playing uh, uh, golf with... Uh, um, Probushes, uh, alien face, they don't do anything to them. They are very happy when people is telling uh, nonsense uh, to the public. But uh, my impression is that they try to attack uh, those who want to make the thing seriously. And uh, the history of, uh, of these happenings, these attacks, against scientists studying UFOs is full of events. One of them was uh, um, a doctor, a famous uh, atmospheric physicist, uh, Jim McDonald. Jim McDonald was uh, repeatedly attacked. He was very dedicated to this research. He was uh, repeatedly uh, attacked by his colleagues. Uh, they tried to discredit him and uh, they put him in such a condition of depression that uh, he committed suicide and unfortunately unfortunately he succeeded uh, they organize situations in which they put uh, all your friends against you uh, your wife against you and uh, they induce this is a kind of mind control i think mm. so scientists are very dangerous and i am dangerous as well uh, we saw there's I some there's a parallel ex oh, i'm sorry sorry what was no, the last sorry, part of that go ahead. no you said scientists are dangerous you're dangerous as well and and i've also been attacked I, oh also you've also been, been okay i, I, I just want to add that, that we've we've there are and i can't think of the name of the gentleman but there are similar driven to suicide stories about the MK Ultra project, which are quite interesting. It's in concerning some of the scientists at the top of that, at the, you know, being dosed by the, their peers with LSD and mm. jumping out of windows, that kind of thing. Um, so that's, that's really interesting. I mean, you know, we've, we've been like very skeptical of this situation, I think for good reason so far, but is there any um, part of your mind that entertains the idea that, these are actually some advanced technological structure from elsewhere, not of this world. Do you, do you play with that in your mind at all? Yes. Um, I, uh, you have been speaking about MK Ultra and uh, mind control. It could be a technology, a my technology of mind coming from uh, others that are not from Earth, and that they want to try to manipulate us. So they want to try to manipulate us, spreading hoaxes but on purpose to try to hide their presence, let's call that so. Um, I think there, are, there is a possibility that uh, um, there is a technology of mind uh, that can interact with uh, people's mind simulating an abduction for instance they can create a sort of um, hallucination which is um, almost real uh, like uh, you know the um, so-called hypnagogic and hypnopompic images that you have in your mind they give you the illusion 
to be there because those images are so clear and beautiful. Mm-hmm. But uh, it doesn't. It didn't happen. It happened only inside their mind. So I believe that most of people who experience the so-called abduction phenomenon are sincere, and I, I respect them, and they must be studied. But they don't think that what has happened really happened in the physical reality. Mm. So this is a terroristic uh, system uh, to manipulate people. It's uh, uh, Someone is doing experiment, and in this case, it could be coming from uh, our people and not from others. Uh, for instance, using uh, um, uh, low, um, low, very low frequency waves uh, like VLF, ELF, you can induce hallucinations. You can obtain the same, but in a different way. We're using microwaves in our brain. Uh, professor, um, um, Canadian professor, I don't remember his name, but he was very famous. He did experiments with uh, um, how God element he called uh, inducing uh, magnetic fields in the brain and giving you the impression that you have an alien sitting uh, on the chair. Oh, my God. That's terrifying. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, depending on the culture of the people, some is seeing aliens, some are seeing uh, the devil, mm. uh, someone sees uh, the Virgin Mary according to your religion or something. Mm. So you can trigger this. Mm. And it's a weapon. It's a weapon to manipulate society. And I am not surprised that someone might uh, irradiate uh, people to make this kind of experiment, uh, to see uh, cynically, to see what, uh, what is the effect that comes out from that, because this is a war. It's a, a weapon mechanism that uh, can be used uh, in war uh, against uh, like an asymmetric war or like a, something like that. So, uh, yeah. I, I, think that's, I think it's reasonable to assume that that war pays for most technological progress on this planet, sadly. And so if we see some sort of technological anomaly, it makes a lot of sense to think about who would have the money to even achieve such a project. And so, you know, it seems conspiratorial, but it's like, who who in the world could afford this otherwise? I mean, look, propaganda and manipulation of the mind has been a stated goal of intelligence services all around the world for the last century. This is not... This is not a, a stunning revelation that anyone would argue with. There, there's scads of records that the the intelligence services in the United States were desperately trying to figure out mind control drugs. And you you mentioned the um, researcher in Canada, and I'm, I, I think this is probably somebody else, but there was a guy who was involved heavily in MKUltra at McGill University, and the entire principle of his work was the ability to erase somebody's mind and to reprogram them in order to believe whatever new ideas were implanted. And that research was, you know, not particularly successful. I think the legacy is that they just psychologically destroyed yeah, they're, everybody they're who was involved. Yeah, very destructive processes, right? Ted Kaczynski is a great example. Yeah, because Ted Kaczynski was actually, he was at Harvard and he was... The Unabomber. Uh, interrogated, or he participated in these MK, uh, the early MK Ultra experiments where they mm-hmm. would basically try to like psychologically break Destroy down the him, participants. Really. Where he was invited in to present some kind of argument, and the experimenter's job was to basically make him 
come apart at belittle the seams him. to belittle him and to degrade him until they broke him psychologically. Over many years. Yeah. yeah he part- but so the 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 point here that I'm trying to make is that oftentimes we have this this perspective on history where we look into the past and we're like, man, they did crazy things back then. And we look at the present and there's not the same... Um, we would never do that now. There just isn't the same amount of evidence, right? You look through these historical documents and you're like, well, they were doing this in the 60s, but it's not like there's any place where there's a document that's like, we're not going to continue doing this and we no longer are interested in attempting to control the minds of people at a distance. The That is still the ultimate desire because what greater tool do you have in statecraft than to control the minds of your opponents? Whether to shake the society apart from or the your inside... From a more pessimistic standpoint. <sighs> yeah. So this, se- this seems like the default. This seems like this is what people want to do at the highest level of power, is to be able to have a lever in the minds of people where they can switch it on to say what it is that they want to say. And that's kind of what's frightening, is that this seems yeah. to, to touch upon this. And I, I just... I wonder if... There is, if there is evidence that this is a mind control attempt, is there also work being done to to disturb its effects, to prevent it from being effective? Mm. Well, yes, theoretically, you can screen uh, a house with a, a Faraday cage, for instance, or something like that, and uh, because you know you you have these ones. Uh, if they are using uh, electromagnetic device, they are all uh, clearly transmitters. So you can screen a house um, from that, uh, but you cannot screen your mind. That's a problem because biophysics is biophysics. And uh, when it affects the brain, oh yeah, the guy was Michael Persinger. Uh, I was speaking about him, a Canadian uh, a neurophysiologist, very famous. And, mm-hmm. Is he still alive? Uh, no. I think mm, he's dead since a few years. And he did a lot of publications about this God helmet thing. And uh, they, they, frankly, they were inject, injecting uh, um, high-frequency magnetic field in the brain. And, uh, and, and they were uh, noticing that people was having a very strong hallucination, but not all the people. It depends on the on the people. Some didn't, many did, but uh, this research is still controversial because there are groups uh, elsewhere, even a Danish group, I think, they tried to reproduce the results and they didn't obtain the same results. So it's not absolute truth. There is something, okay, because it was published on peer-reviewed journals. But uh, it's interesting and and very disquieting uh, thinking uh, about these possibilities. Well, I mean, it doesn't seem beyond belief because we know... uh, Do you know about transcranial magnetic stimulation? I heard something about that, yeah. Well, it's basically that if you apply a sufficiently powerful magnet to the surface of the cranium, you can change brain states. And a few years ago, maybe about two years ago, there was actually a nature paper where they had effectively designed an, um, a, a magnetic stimulation implant, like a, a brain pacemaker, basically, that they put into this lady's brain and they cured her intractable depression. 
And it's not quite at the level of, you know, being able to implant specific emotions and, and thoughts and experiences, but it is apparent that by applying an electromagnetic field that you can induce significant changes in the functioning of the brain. Interesting. Yeah, it's actually, I think, become a pretty halfway popular fringe depression treatment at this point. I don't point. Even, I, like, there was a, so I, um, I worked as an outdoor guide for a while, and one of the ladies who was on a tour with me worked at a transcranial magnetic mm. stimulation clinic. And she was talking about how she would use it on herself in the middle of the day for, for a pick-me-up when she was starting to get tired instead of drinking mm. a cup of coffee. And she would basically just, you know, zap herself. And then she'd go on fully energized for the rest of the day. And she had kids that had depression and autism and anxiety. And they would come in for these treatments. And she was like, you know, it's crazy because if you tune it incorrectly, you can exacerbate the condition. And you have to really play with the way that you, the frequencies yeah. that you apply in order to dampen whatever's going on inside rather than accelerate it. But this is a field. There's conferences. There's, there's manufacture of the machines. This is... <clears throat> I'm thinking about uh, Nikola Tesla was, uh, was doing something like that among his many inventions. Um, he made a sort of electrotherapic machine mm -hmm. that was working in very low frequencies. Then I'm thinking also to Dr. Or Hulda Clark, who made the so-called zapper thing, and um, it's electromagnetic emission. And I remember I was with a colleague, um, a geophysicist, uh, in one during our mission. I was uh, bitten by an uh, insect, so it inflated my hand, and she had this little device, which uh, she applied it to my hand. It, I felt a sense of uh, heat and the uh, pain went away completely. So it's, uh, it's very interesting how electromagnetic waves uh, are working and uh, maybe medicine in, uh, from biochemical will become electromagnetic. I don't know. It's, mm. uh, I'm thinking about the quantum electrodynamic field uh, that uh, allegedly surrounds our our body uh, from yeah because you do a lot of you're, i don't know about a lot but you, you've written a bit about quantum mechanics and the production yeah. of consciousness right um yeah. do you imagine that to be a, an electromagnetic process at heart as well consciousness or can you can you tell us a bit about your ideas the, the quantum consciousness ideas yeah well um i've been reading uh, several aspects uh, clearly the most important one is uh, uh the um, theory um, by um, roger penrose and stuart emerf uh, telling that uh, consciousness is born from the collapse of the wave function that keep together the microtubules in the brain every time you have a collapse uh, which occurs spontaneously not by the observation, but spontaneously at the level of quantum vacuum and at the level of space-time. It's like a black hole, practically. Every time, uh, um, for every 60th of second, there is a process according to this theory. So uh, this is not electromagnetic mechanism. It's a quantum mechanism that produces consciousness moments. And uh, I'm very interested because... Uh, 
in some way it connects with uh, David Bohm, uh, um, how to say, uh, quantum potential and um, implicate and explicate order. Uh, the explicate order is our brain, our physical brain, and the implicate order is consciousness that emerges from a quantum process. Uh, I've been studying that, but it's quite, there is a lot of things because I've been thinking about uh, other possibilities. What happens? Um, are we sure that consciousness uh, um, can be born uh, only from microtubules inside the neurons from a biological body? Or is it possible that uh, other means can bring consciousness, such as a plasma, for instance? In some situations, uh, plasmas can be entangled together uh, in only particular situations that have been simulated. So I'm wondering uh, about some light bulbs in the sky. Uh, is it possible that uh, they behave like a, a brain, that the particles of the of the plasma behave like the microtubules in the brain, and that uh, uh, they have a short moment of consciousness or something like that. We don't know enough about the mechanism of consciousness and not even uh, about the mechanism of life. We think life is based on carbon, but uh, we're right, of course, but we're not sure if silicon can be done. We are not sure. Someone thinks that if you use a, um, a molecule of, uh, oh, even um, Bose-Einstein condensate, they're quantum uh, coherent, they could uh, host uh, consciousness as well. Mm. And it's a long thing, okay. Well, I mean, I think that at the heart of it is that it's a resonant phenomenon, which I think is very related to disturbance by electromagnetic phenomena because if you have a quant if you have a resonant quantum phenomena and it sets up a, a, f a, a an electromagnetic field that's detectable because we know that a conscious brain has an electromagnetic field yeah then it links it directly to your ability to manipulate it using electromagnetic means and so the two seem inexorably related and the origin point the origin point is difficult. We've talked to a lot of people that seem to think that, you know, we, we live in a consciousness-first universe, that the consciousness is the foundation and that everything else is built on top of it. And so when you see something happening in the brain, what you're really seeing is it is reacting to something that is primary and our, our, our neural architecture, what microtubules or whatever, is just the, the antenna that is harnessing something that is really the, the stuff that the universe is made out of. But whatever the mechanism by which you arrive at your theory of consciousness, it seems apparent that it is modifiable by electromagnetic radiation. And do you know the work of Michael Levin? No. Oh, wow. You're going to love this. Okay, so Michael Levin. I have to read that. Yeah. Well, he... Uh, he's coming back on the show, by the way, everybody who's listening. Yeah, he's we're, coming we're back really in April. He's going to be here in April again. So his experiments is he works with these two-headed flatworms. They're called planaria. And if uh, you cut this flatworm in half, it regenerates into two flatworms. And he discovered that if you cut it in half and as it is regenerating, you apply an electric field, you can permanently change its morphology. So he can grow a planaria with two heads, with two tails, with these different body plans. And then he takes away the electromagnetic field and he cuts it in half 
and without any changes to the genome on the on the textual level, he will eternally regrow planaria with two heads. Impressive. Without without the application of the magnetic field, and it, ever and again, it gets bigger than it's that, right? Yeah, I didn't know that. He's it, really trying to apply this to all sorts of regenerative medicine, and also just the idea that cells are communicating in processes that aren't as simple as receptor ligand interactions, which is obviously the the bedrock of most molecular medicine approaches, and let's just say anatomy at the cellular level right now. And so he has some really compelling data on those processes too, by using different, uh, you know, electricity blockers, basically disrupting the the communication cycles. His uh, his other work is that he's making these little biobots where he can apply the same principles to making biological robots from skin cells. And so he can take the scrapings off of a frog skin cell, put them in a dish where they're just in solution, apply the appropriate external magnetic field, and then they form these structured blobs. And the structured blobs are then able to go around and like sheepdogs, herd the cells that are remaining in solution to make more of themselves. And then they can, they, they behave. But they're skin cells brought into it's it's it it defies belief almost i mean it certainly points to the idea that there are field interactions at play in developmental processes it also makes me think of uh, brett kagan's work too um who's this do you know brett kagan he's got this uh cortical labs yeah it was called like Dish brain was the big headline that was going around a little while ago, but he essentially has some cortical neurons in a dish and he has interfaced them with a computer in such a way that they learn how to play the game Pong. I don't know if you remember Pong, but it's like... Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, one of the first video games. Uh, So, and, And he's found it. What's really interesting is he's found a way to essentially reward the cells by applying a predictable pulsed electro electrode yeah they're predictably pulsing them with electromagnetic uh signals and so when they miss the ball he gives them chaos essentially and the cells don't like that and through this reinforcement process he's actually taught them to play pong and it makes you think even deeper about the ways in which cells could be manipulated electromagnetically and how that could be playing out in advanced technology already and also, I, I, maybe this is something that you could comment on, is how we live in a world that is so suffused with electromagnetic radiation that is artificial. And I wonder if you have any sense of how that affects minds and, and bodies, or if that's something that's outside of your field. Well, it's not my field, but I had uh, a colleague who was uh, a physicist, uh, with an interest in biophysics uh, that uh, gave a uh, um, presentation with uh, all the effects uh, that uh, electromagnetic radiation can cause in different organs of our body according to the wavelength. And as I said, it's not my field at all, but uh, mostly. VLF and ELF radiation and microwaves are particularly important uh, in affecting the brain or also the cells of the body. 
cells of the body clearly is microwave, so high frequency radio waves. Um, but I, uh, I remember there was a very well done table uh, that she did, but I don't remember honestly what was written because it's not my field. But uh, it's quite uh, interesting uh, to measure electromagnetic field. And um, uh, I have an observation in the sense that there are a lot of people who um, protest against antennas of uh, cell phones, for instance, or something. And they say they're killing us, they're inducing us cancer or something like that. I had a tri-field uh, um, magnetometer in my hand, uh, which was measuring also electric field. They wanted to measure that. And they noticed that the effect was dropping from a, a high, how many volts were there? I don't remember, 7,000 volts. I don't remember. It, the effect was dropping after 80 meters. After 80 meters, when you are 80 meters far from the pole, nothing happens. And people seems not to know that anyway, the electromagnetic radiation is dropping with the inverse of the square of the distance. So, uh, and you have like near field effects and far field effects when it comes to antenna, right? There's there's yeah. a very different power distribution in the close range than the distant. Yeah. And actually we had a, we had a funny experience. We were trying to shoot a film up on this uh big tall hill in San Francisco recently and right underneath the Sutro Tower. Yeah, like we weren't that we, I don't think we were 80 meters away from them. Where we maybe we were. But it was funny because we we were trying to we were all set up to film and then we listened to the mics and we were like picking up radio stations inside the microphones and it was just like, "Oh, wow, this is weird because it's just something you don't think about that often, you know, how how much electromagnetic excitation can be invisible and just happening, you know, and you're, you're just not aware of it. But yeah, we were very close, I guess. It's, it's nice. Yeah, I mean, I had, I had a friend who was, because um, I think that one of the things that people were worried about uh, 5G was that you have to have more repeaters. Right, so a cell phone yeah. tower that is LTE or 4G is is centrally located, but for 5G you have to have you have to have much more frequent repeaters for the system. And he uh, got a 5G transmitter and attempted to see if he could uh, if he could mutate yeast with it because he was like, look, if this is actually causing any kind of DNA break or any kind of damage, we should be able to detect it. And so he actually set up like a garage laboratory and did all the right things, registered his hypothesis beforehand, um, double-blinded it, and there was nothing there. And then he tried, he was like, okay, well, there's a theory, uh, there's a lady who works at Caltech, uh, her name is Jackie Barton, and her theory is that DNA is an electromagnetic antenna. And so the way that damage gets repaired is that there's, an in, there's, there's a disturbance in the electromagnetic field that the repair proteins are attracted to. And so he was like, okay, well, it might be possible that if you break the DNA beforehand and then you apply the 5G radiation, then you're not going to be able to get repair that happens and he tried that, and it didn't work either. And so it seems like there's not, there isn't any clear evidence that it's causing harm, but people really, I think that what it is is that people are, they don't 
like modernity. Like, I think that that's really what it comes down to, is that the the radiation and the cell phones and the computers and all of the technology is just reflective of the disturbing times in which we live, where we're separated from whatever evolutionary context we might have one day had. And we're kind of, we're lost in space a little bit. And so people's attention gets turned towards these things for psychological reasons rather than necessarily biological ones. Yeah, too many, too many anyway are afraid of 5G, but uh, there is a suspicion by all the generation people also against technology. I remember when I was uh, doing my PhD, um, we were making uh, first publications, you know, with the research group and my, my boss uh, didn't want to write directly on the computer. He, wa he was writing by hand. I told, why don't you? Why don't you write on a computer so you can delete, you can add? There is uh, some resistance of the old generation. And uh, I am just on the border to enter into the old generation. I'm, I'm realizing also the way in which the new synthesizers are done is, uh, is different. Uh, the, the the technology, the way in which you change sound parameters, is completely different, and uh, I realized that I belong to an old generation. So. Uh, yeah, but, are you are you a fan of analog synthesizers? Is that is that your jam? Uh, yeah, analog. Um, I have also digital Roland. Uh, I have others, and not only this one, but. Um, um, with analog sound, uh, you can obtain something very uh, more suggestive. I don't want to imitate uh, the sound of known instruments, but I want to create alien sounds yeah. that uh, with analog instruments you you, you can do. And uh, well, I, I, and yeah. that might be just because they they replicate more what electric currents are like in nature, right? You're it's a very Analog synthesizers are really simple. It's it's basically like you're keying in on some frequency and you know you can change the shape of that like you can make it resonate more but the 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 production isn't just these simple on and off switches that you get with digital. And uh you know there's some really good digital modelers but they're still usually trying to reproduce what you would just normally happen into. I think what you're like trying to get at is like there's the real joy of creating synthesizer music is discovering new sounds that no one's ever made before, yeah. and uh, yeah, I, I totally feel that. I've uh, we've got a we've got an MS20 here, which is like our only analog synthesizer, but uh, it, it can get some amazing, beautiful sounds out of it for such a little Absolutely. box. Yeah. I'm sure there also soundscapes uh, that you can create uh, uh, with uh, a core. Uh, you know, chords, for instance, there are some chords, the, the way in which you set up the parameter uh, when you switch the decay, attack decay, sustain release, and you put a total release and sustain, total sustain, the sounds goes very slowly down. Mm -hmm. And uh, to simulate, for instance, with, a, I don't remember, it's a sine wave, was it? you can create a sort of uh, uh, human voices practically hmm. that uh, I I was almost able to do that. Hmm. I don't hmm. like uh, 
I don't like virtual synthesizers because I don't know. Maybe my 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 sound card is not good enough to mm. with. Yeah, the there's no knobs to pull on and stuff too. There's something to that, like physically getting away from computers while you're creating music. I feel like yeah, really you helpful. do everything with a mouse. Okay, instead of you, it should be nice that you can uh, you have a touch screen so that you can change with the finger uh, on the on the knobs. So for instance, I have the Moog modular, uh, which. Uh, it's identical to the real one, but uh, it's a problem to change all the parameters with a mouse all the time, especially when you are, uh, you know, in real time, you're playing uh, in front of the people or something, and then it's not practical. So... Man, yeah, it's, I, I, lo I love your music too. We were listening to it all morning and it's just, uh, it's so soothing and it's the kind of music that I'm always looking for and I have difficulty finding that kind of music for whatever reason. Uh, I find it really useful for studying and reading and it's, you know, it's a very contemplative Thank you. music. Yeah. Thank you. I, I tried, I change from <coughs> sometimes very rhythmic, some others they're plain space like sounds or it's my meditation moment uh, and uh, i always start from uh, i i need to like the sound that i create when i like the sound then the inspiration for the music comes as well then i decide afterwards the rhythm and the soloist uh, instrument no. It's a, I never get tired about that. I published a lot on Bandcamp, for instance. And uh, yes. Do you ever play with other people or is it just a person? Yeah. You do, yeah. Yeah, I did. But uh, um, we were, there was uh, electric and classical guitar. It didn't fit. Mm. It's a kind of music that maybe it fits with uh, electric guitar, for instance, when you think about the Tangerine Dream um, music, uh, sometimes they were using soloist uh, of uh, electric guitar, synthesized electric guitar, anyway, mm. uh, but flute, no, flute, uh, I, I don't think it fits. Mm. There was our friend who was... Uh, completely buried by our instruments and he was trying to play flute. I, we had to put the volume down because uh, no one was listening to the flute. Okay. Mm. So no, it doesn't fit. I, yeah, I, I tried one time, like we played in a little group with, uh, with a, another guy who was an electronic musician. And what I found, I actually at some point switched over and started playing saxophone. But what I had to do was like feed the sax through all these guitar pedals in order to make yeah. it this otherworldly sound because yeah. The beauty of electronic music is it takes you to this other universe, right? It's not, it's not like something acoustic that you experience in everyday life. You like you're making this whole other landscape, and so yeah, I think Absolutely. you have to really, really destroy your sound if you're going to try to bring in something acoustic. Absolutely. But, you spoke about the socks. I tried once. My friend had the socks. I never, I was never able to blue. Uh, air inside the socks i'm not able to <laughs> it's coming out well it's actually it's, it's funny there's uh i think korg makes like an electronic oh, saxophone yeah, yeah. it looks exactly like the saxophone 
Um, uh, but it's doing that. Yeah. yeah, and so and it sounds. We had uh, when we were living in Portland, we would go to this weekly uh, music night, and there's a guy who was really good at flutes, and he got one of these electronic saxes, and it was incredible because you can program it with a lot of different voices. And once you learn, you the could fingerings, like have it play play a synth. I think it's MIDI compatible. You could have it play an analog synth or something if you wanted to. And it was really cool because there's something about because I I don't think you put any air into it, but you do keep it in your mouth. And so there's something about the way that you're 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 holding it. No, no, and I it, think you blow into it. You do think? Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's something about the 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 structure of it that leads people to make melodies that they wouldn't otherwise on keyboards. Like there's something about the the instrument itself that leads you into certain pattern of sounds that you wouldn't get anywhere else because of the orientation. Yeah, I understand. It, it, it's true. I don't know how my my friend was able to blew into it, but uh, he, <laughs> he was able. It's it's fascinating. And uh, but um, if I had to play with other musicians, I would play with other keyboard men or synthesists because. Um, um, it's compatible. It's uh, it's another universe. Something mm. we and uh, it's something so. Yeah, one of the we had this really amazing experience when we were in Portland. We belonged to this community. It was called Portland Synth Improvisers Community. I think collective, I believe. collective, collective. But it was really cool. What it was was a bunch of nerds met up at a coffee shop after close, and they would put a mixer at every table. And everyone would bring headphones and a synth of some sort, some sort of electronic, you know, music creation. Thing. I think that the only rule was no guitars. No guitars, no acoustic <laughs> instruments, um, all silent, right? So you can move around from table to table and plug in and people are just playing with each other. And it's just, there's just a completely different galaxy at every table. It was just a really awesome nice. uh, conception. And of course, the pandemic ruined it, but... And then we moved away, but that was that was just such an amazing way to enjoy that art form, and it's because uh, there's something engage there's something so engaging about it, right? It's it's one thing to listen to it, but to actually participate in the creation of it, and you don't have to be a musician, really, right? To turn some knobs, you just like have to, to be sensitive. You have to like, be sensitive. That's really you got to be a good idea. listener. So, how did you start playing music? Was it something that you always did? Um. My aunt uh, was a teacher, but she was also played piano. So I started uh, with her piano, and um, but I'm self-taught. Unfortunately, I didn't study that. I studied by myself with the help of my aunt, which taught me the basics. Then I studied the electronics of the of the scenes, and I passed immediately to to synthesizers which i've had many and uh, i i had something like 10 or so but um i had to give them away because i was selling the house i didn't know where to put them and so i had to give away i, I waited 10 years to start again during the night i was uh, dreaming uh, i'm playing uh, uh, some chords and uh, it was beautiful but i have not anymore my my scenes uh. so uh, I started again later and uh, I never stopped uh, enjoying it I'm, I'm, I'm never bored but the only thing is that I would need new scenes because you know after many experiments then you need the new oscillators you need the new 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 kind of scenes like the 
a German Waldorf quantum uh, synthesizer, which is doing incredible things, but it's quite too much expensive, really. Yeah, that's one of the traps of electronic music is you just want to keep buying new pieces because each instrument has its own character and it's going to evoke yes. new ideas. And it's really funny. Like synth nerds are just real gearheads, you know, it's like... Yeah, it was incredible. Like people would have these suitcases and uh, they were the, it was like lunchbox plug, like modular units. And what? so they would be able, they would have like... 15 I mean, 20 guys, yeah guys would invest their whole paychecks in these things you know? Yeah, know these are like not rich dudes and they're just they've got like thousands of dollars worth of gear in these boxes and but every I know, week I know there's something new people who give up uh food for <laughs> buying new modules for the euro rex uh, uh, systems or something yeah, uh, yeah that, that was me during grad school when i was trying to build this studio it was like well could eat some peanut butter and yeah, Put you play, um, you publish your music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. Shiloh Delay. I published under the name Shiloh Delay. Um, so that's my middle name and my last name. But um, wow. yeah, yeah, I've been doing this since I was a kid, for sure. I, I write songs, but, um, you know, I'm definitely into all sorts of atmospheric creations. You know, it's it's a meditation for me, too. I, I, that's actually what I'm going to do this afternoon is... Um, well, when you when we have time, please put the link because I want to listen to your music, uh, both of you, uh, because I um, listen also the music of other musicians because it's always instructive. We learn from each other, you know. Yeah. Um, all the time uh, on on Facebook, for instance, I'm in many groups, and especially the German ones because I'm very close to that kind of music. And uh, I, I feel that I learn every time more. And so it's beautiful to listen what the others are. Yeah. After all, we are simply uh, translating uh, with our keys and our knobs uh, something that is already written in the cosmos. We're transcribing them down with these instruments. Yeah, it's, it's already written. It's interesting how that perception has kind of deteriorated from modern science because if you look at the history of science all of the original astronomers were obsessed with this idea that music came from the cosmos and they were seeing you know because you see these same uh, resonances in the solar system and in different gravitational interactions that are stable reproductions of the tones we have and that we use yeah. to build music out. And people used to just see this everywhere. They were absolutely, I mean, the Greeks are a great example, but even into the Enlightenment thinkers, people were just absolutely sure that music held the key to the cosmos. And you don't really see that so much among scientists these days. And I, I feel like that's tragic. I think, actually, I think that uh, quantum field theory is a rebirth of that mindset. Hmm. Because I think that it's a resonant field that stretches through everything and everything is is a part of it and it's very ethereal and it's very uh, harmonic. And there is something to this idea that like when you're creating music, you just feel like when you're completely in the zone, it's just kind of coming through you, right? It's not like you're, it's more like you're discovering something than creating it right you don't you're not engineering that moment always it sometimes just comes through i would say some of the best ideas like you have to go back and refine them and you know make them presentable but the the melodies come through you to some extent like an antenna absolutely i agree i completely agree there are some magic moments that uh, 
um, you don't prepare them. They simply come when um, you, found, you find a very uh, particular sound that resonates with your, your soul, practically. All of a sudden, it's like if the hands start to move by themselves on the keys, something like if you are guided, like if you are, um, like uh, on, I've been doing windsurf from when I was young, mm -hmm. like to be, to surf on the waves. Yeah. And then when you learn to stand up on the board, and then you go with it, and uh, especially if you make sequences or something, it's something like magic. If you try to reproduce, because then you want to do that better, to write it, it will never come the same. Mm. At least I, I speak from my experience. Yeah, man. It's like one of the closest things to a supernatural experience that I, I can relate to is just the experience of having a musical idea. or, And I imagine like having a scientific breakthrough is kind of similar, right? Where you, you the world has just prepared this you know, sea of evidence and you've just kind of come into like an awakening, right? It's a very similar process. There's That's kind of one of the most inexplicable pieces of consciousness is our ability to to pull these patterns out of just a sea of chaos. To have an idea. Have an idea. What is it? Like, what is having an idea? It's such a wild concept to really try to put your finger on. Yeah. Do you have a sense for where ideas come from? Uh, <clears throat> yes. I do. <laughs> I have um, I've written a book um, which is very strange. Um, it is in 2015. Uh, the clear it's a only speculative book. So it's something that has, is not ground to earth like the work I normally do. But it's speculative about the nature of consciousness or something. I had thought about a model of consciousness uh, in which practically uh, the universe works like a supercomputer, non-local supercomputer, where the bits are the up and down part of the quantum phone, practically. of uh, You have uh, up and down. It's like a wave, you know, uh, the quantum foam. And then you use the up and down part to modulate uh, like bits, and you memorize everything inside the quantum vacuum, and namely something that is between the electron and the nucleus in the atom. In the quantum vacuum, you have a supercomputer that uh, memorizes everything that is coming from our mind. Every time we do something or think something, we upload this thing on the, this quantum computer, as well as we can download this kind of information. And I think that downloading is a result of, uh, of some scientists like Nikola Tesla or like Leonardo, uh, who are geniuses. The secret of geniality consists in how brave, how sensitive, how powerful is your non-local antenna in downloading a kind of information that has been put there by other beings and you, you don't realize and it comes inside you through the shape of images and these images are not the information itself, but they are 
there to trigger some process in your brain. It's something like when you click on an icon of a software, you click twice and you activate the software. Mm. Uh, it's something like a computer, a non-local computer. So uh, mm. I wrote this book, which name is the hyperspace, the hyperspace of consciousness that now is only in ebook version, but it was published also on paper. So mm. that sounds cool. Yeah, we'll put a link. To, if we, do you have a? Is it published? People can find it. Yes. Uh, okay. It, it, it is uh, the Massimo Teodorani, the hyperspace of consciousness. Uh, Bath Words Books Australia. Uh, so uh, they can find the ebook version there. Very but cool. it was published in Sweden as a paper book, but it's not anymore uh, in press. And so, unfortunately. So it's a mad book. It's completely mad because sometimes I like <laughs> to, to do these things. I yeah, think, I mean, uh, even from a like information perspective, I think that that works analogously too, right? In, in that there's a mimetic heredity to being a human where ideas are passed around and the society, you know, why why is calculus discovered twice at the same time? Why is the inverse square law discovered by lots of people at the same time? And it's almost like True. the information C is productive enough. The foam is there for people to pluck these ideas out. And yes. beyond that, I think that each generation is is made aware of these ideas foundationally and so children that are born in a world that has these ideas already codified develop differently than those that were born before somebody put those ideas into place and so you see this this intergenerational cultural transmission of knowledge where the the basis of how we have ideas changes over time it's true and uh, something else about this is that it's it's almost this kind of antenna process by which you know there's something that you tune into and and you you're able to download it or to to upload and i think that resonance is requires uh stillness mm. And we live in a time where it feels like ideas are kind of stuck sometimes. I there's a paper that came out in Nature just recently where they were talking about the gradual decrease in innovation in patents and papers. And what they basically did is they uh, codified it by saying that, okay, so a truly disruptive idea is one that doesn't cite the preceding literature, but is then cited going forward. And so how many papers do you have that aren't referencing things that came before, but are then referenced repeatedly afterwards. And they basically, it's, it's, it's an exponential decay curve for both patents and papers. And there's a lot of people that are like, oh, it's, it has to do with peer review and they're kicking at the structure of the machine. But I also think that it has to do with the, the elimination of boredom from the world. Where when you sit alone in a room and you don't have visual stimulus and you don't have something that's constantly pinging phone's and asking for you, the phone's not ringing, and you're, you, you're able to find stillness, that's where ideas that's come like from. That's the only time I ever have ideas is out in the woods, actually. I, I'm completely devoid of ideas any other time. Uh, it's like it's, it's really it's the same. I'm walking on the wood, especially when I go mushrooming or... Um, now we have a lot of snow here, walking in the wood uh, with the uh, snow. It's, uh, I completely agree. And uh, I noticed that uh, you have to make the void inside your mind 
to get this to allow this flow uh, occur and uh, to make the total void completely mm -hmm. and then uh, images are coming because it's something incredible there the before falling asleep i i think you also have uh, experienced these hypnagogic uh, images that are coming with high resolution uh, color it's it's not a dream it's something real it's mm. like you see in, in television and uh, you participate in that it's fantastic it's uh, i think that in the future we will have every house will have a faraday cage room <laughs> like I, I think that it's assuming the prices of copper go down well it, do you have to have copper for a faraday cage or can you make a faraday cage from other metals I don't Something know. conductive, I guess. Yeah. Well, because I mean, I I think that there is, if you're if you are suffused constantly with modernity, and people live in the cities and they cannot get somewhere in nature, and the best thing that they have is just a quiet room in their house. You have to have a place where nothing can disturb you, and it's not because you've put your phone on silent and necessarily put it away, but it's literally a place that you go that is that is meant to be undisturbed. And we don't have that in the world very much. Especially in the cities. Especially in the cities. And there, there doesn't seem to be a reversal of the flow towards the cities, right? I think that predictions that by 2050, 90% of the world's population is going to live in cities. And so you wonder what's going to happen to the ability to have these transcendent ideas, these paradigm shifts where all of a sudden everything snaps into place. And for me, I think that the only the only way that I can imagine that is these these chambers where people can go that are that are enforced quiet, that are separated from the world. But we would need that also not only if, not only if we live in the cities, but also if we live uh, in nature, because sometimes there are places like uh, fault lines that produce a lot of radio radiation hmm. in the um, VHF. ELF, VLF, uh, it's due to the rocks that are crashing uh, uh, together, underground quartz, for instance, is crashing, especially during seasons. And uh, also nature is producing this electromagnetic radiation and also the atmosphere, of course. So yes, as um, you said, uh, it would be nice to have a, how to say, vacuum chamber where to stay. Um, one hour every day, maybe inside water, because uh, I was told by my wife that water is very conducive of uh, certain phenomena. And it's, it's like it's very difficult for uh, yeah. you know low energy electromagnetic radiation, like essentially radio waves, don't get into water very well, right? It it absorbs yeah. very heavily in the microwave. Yeah. Um, you can't use a radio underwater, obviously. Yeah. So that's an interesting insulating property of it too. Man, yeah, now I just want to go in the woods. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh we we technically we live in nature, but uh we are probably we're 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 kind of in a rural area, but in order to get away from the easily accessible I don't know if this is a problem in Italy, but people out here when they go in the woods, they leave a lot of garbage. And so, especially around the towns, uh, there's areas where you go that are shooting ranges where there's like busted up televisions and washing machines and like people just bring stuff out to target practice. That's very bad. It's, I mean, it's horrifying, but there's, you can go far enough away, but it takes about an hour to get there. 
And our our lives are just such that we don't have time every week to do it. And so we're at like week two of of urban living. And yeah. I think we're both we starting house to, yeah. <laughs> We're both starting to come apart at the seams a little bit. So what's next for you? Are you uh are you pursuing these um you know, UAP scanners heavily, is that kind of where the focus of your work is right now? Or what what's coming up next that we can look forward to from your your hands? Yeah, um yeah. Some things. Um, for now, I'm doing uh, calculations to optimize this uh, um, spectrograph, um, the optimum resolution, optimum type to obtain good data um, with the Galileo project, but not only with the Galileo project, because I'm, um, I started in, again a collaboration with the project as Dalen in Norway. With the, they have to re. Uh, uh, refurbish uh, the um, one of the two observatories, so they asked my um, help for 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 doing that. And um, I have a book with uh, my wife, who is a parapsychologist. She's Canadian, and she lives with me here in North Italy. Uh, and the book is about uh, a possible. This is speculative. A theory about uh, a scientific theory, an attempt of scientific theory about uh, uh, life after death Whoa. with no need of a God. There is no need of a God for a biological or biophysical process. So we have developed this thing. We are now... Um, um, looking uh, again the manuscript uh, and I think in two or three months we will uh, submit it uh, uh, it's another mad book um, then what else uh, I will continue to play probably I will probably buy a new synth <laughs> I, have to, I have to decide which maybe the quantum if I am completely mad I will buy the quantum mm. from Waldorf but uh, I don't know I will see uh, it will end up with a model electronics, you know, six hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it gets worse than that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then there is uh, there are some books. Instead, these are very ground basis. There is a book about uh, particle physics that I um, published uh, fifteen years ago for uh, students and uh, as a manual. Uh, seen from the perspective of, of an astrophysicist, which I have to uh, update, uh, um, especially after the discovery of the Higgs boson, and to make a new edition. So I have to work on that book again. Uh, yeah, several things. Other things, probably I, I'm going to do other things, but uh, I'm losing neurons, you know, you know, yeah. like the losing neurons, like the. Um, uh, glass balls, you know, that fall everywhere along the road. I'm forgetting things, but th th there is also something else that I have to do, but I now don't remember. <laughs> Maybe That's because awesome. it's early, late in the night, uh, I'm uh, old and, uh, you know. I mean, it's, it's always good when, when you know that there's always more things to be done. I think that's one of the most reassuring things about being alive is is just having an endless list of 
projects that you have set up before you. I think that's actually probably one of the keys to healthy aging in general. Is just always having something. This is do. going on, and I'm happy with that. I have also a very stimulating wife in this sense, intellectually, and I'm very happy with that. Uh, we have a lot of uh, nature around here. And uh, two cats that uh, one is sleeping in near the chair here, and uh, so yes, we are quite happy. And life is interesting. Yeah, yeah it's wonderful. It's been fascinating talking to you. Yeah, for yeah. me too. Really fun uh, to for, you. Thank you so much for your questions, for your patience, and uh, and for having me with you here. Very yeah, much. yeah, and I, and I really want to keep an eye on your work and see how this pans out with the uh, UAP scanners and yeah I'd love to see I'd love to see that become a readily available technology that people could implement to themselves because mm-hmm. so, it seems like scanning the sky is is quite a large task it's a it's a big area and <laughs> humans well. have always been fascinated by it too yeah people would be into it yeah definitely so yeah thanks for coming by man it's been Thank really you fun to meet uh, you so much you will put um, this uh, recording on your website I guess yeah, well, it'll be uh, at all the podcast places, and we'll put it up on YouTube. And yeah, we'll send you links once it's published. And yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, it was a great pleasure to have you, and and I wish you a very nice weekend. Thank you.